reading of God's word, beginning at verse 13 in Galatians 1. It says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he used to persecute us and is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Amen. So, what we have here is a continuation of the Apostle Paul's self-defense. It's a self-defense of his ministry, and it's a self-defense of the gospel that his ministry hung upon. Uh, the letter to the Galatians is what we might call a, a um, polemical letter, a polemical epistle. Polemics is something that every Christian at some point is going to, it's most likely going to have to engage in. Um, because we, we live in a world that is opposed to the Lord. We live in a world that crucified our Lord and Savior. And, and Jesus tells us himself that if how they treated him, they will treat us. And so it's going to be necessary from time to time to engage in polemics. Uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines polemics as an aggressive attack or on, excuse me, an aggressive attack on or a refutation of the opinions or principles of another. And, and certainly, the Apostle Paul is aggressively refuting his opponents here in this epistle. Um, in, a, in our text from a few weeks ago, he says two times, he says that if anyone preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. That means to let, to let him be cut off from the possibility of salvation. It's a, it's a harsh term. In our text from this morning, he, he vows to God. He's, he's putting his integrity on the line. He makes this vow to God, this oath before God. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul's going to say that he wishes his opponents would emasculate themselves. And I'll leave that for Pastor Nick to explain gladly. Um, so so there, are, there are two things that Paul's opponents are going after. Uh, number one, they're going after the content of the gospel message. And this defense began in verses 6 through 10, which we've already covered. And then he's going to pick it up again with, very, with a lot of detail, beginning in chapter 2, verse 15. And he's going to carry it to the end, of the, the end of this epistle, this defense of the gospel. And what he's been establishing is that the gospel he preaches is God's gospel. It's not his. He hasn't changed it. It's not something that he has made up. Uh, this one, there, there is one gospel message from God, one true religion, one God, and Paul received this message from God himself. We talked about last week how it is that mankind comes along, though, and tries to create his own religions. He makes up his own gospel. He tweaks the true gospel sometimes. And it could be for a myriad of reasons, you know, possibly control, possibly um, some ethical reasoning or conscience, assuaging, but at the root of it all is, is really a hatred for God, a hatred for His offer of grace. You see, everyone actually knows that God who has revealed Himself in Scripture is the Creator and Lord of all. In a way, there's, there's no such thing as atheists, really. Uh, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not that the truth of God isn't known, that general revelation is hid from us. It's not. It's plain to mankind. But mankind, in our sin, suppresses that truth. We don't deal with it. And the reason for it is because 
We are born dead in our sin. We are born opposed to God. Uh, we commit to memory John 3.16, and we should, because it is a, a wonderful verse that tells about the gospel. But we also need to know John 3.18, which says that he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the, only, in the name of the only Son of God. You see, we should already be believing. But we are born dead in Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, the penalty of that sin was imputed to us because we were in him. He represented all of mankind. In theology, we call it federal headship. What that means is just it means that he's a, he's a covenantal representative. And so we all died in him because he broke the covenant that he was in with God. And had he you know, not broken it, then he would have obtained blessing and favor for us, but we know he did not. And so we are united to him in his deadness, condemned when he sinned. And we need to be made alive and united to Christ, the second Adam. That's what the Apostle Paul calls him in Romans chapter 5. And it's a work that only God can do. We need to have Jesus as our federal head, to be in covenant with him through the new covenant and have his righteousness imputed to us. And it's, a, it's, and it's God's gospel of grace, in whom all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in. The Father elects us in Christ to be holy and blameless. The Son lives, dies, and lives again for us. And the Holy Spirit applies this work to us through faith in his time, by grace alone, through Christ's by, through faith alone and in Christ alone. And so we cannot change God's gospel. That's what Paul's opponents have done, though. We are, we are simply called to declare this message from God, not change it. I've heard it likened before to the relationship between a, a restaurant and a customer. And this is a little helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you, too. Um, so in this analogy, we are the waiters. And... The chef, the kitchen, that's God. The customer is, is other people, okay? And there's only one thing on the menu at this restaurant. Now, at a restaurant, the waiter doesn't do anything to the food that comes out. It's already been prepared. The, way the, the, the waiter doesn't add any food to it, doesn't rearrange it if it's a good restaurant. You know, it's all done by the kitchen staff, the chef. And so we, as ministers of the gospel, people who are supposed to take this message of God, we're not to change it, to modify it all. We just take what God has given to us and announce it. And we trust that there is power in it. Right? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we just take what God has already done. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying he has done, but these opponents that he has here are saying that's not true. They're saying that he has changed it. And then secondly, Paul is defending his ministry as well because they are intrinsically connected. Um, there is a connection between the message that we have and the life that we live. And so his apostolic ministry is being challenged by them. So he's defending his character and how it is that he received this gospel and then how he acted upon it. And this section begins in verse 11. It continues actually through chapter 2, verse 14. So next week when Pastor Nick is back, he'll be preaching on something that's kind of a similar topic, a defense of his apostolic ministry. So why is Paul on the defensive like this? Why is he offering this detailed defense of his ministry in chapter 1 and 2? And who are these opponents? Well, according to verse 7, we read that in, in chapter 1, that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But in order for them to change the gospel, you see, they had to discredit Paul's gospel, who had founded these churches in the region of Galatia and taught them the gospel in the first place. And it doesn't take too much reading between the lines to see that the people in verse 7 were calling into question Paul's apostolic ministry, how it is that he received this call from God. And we'll find out that they were basically, what they were wanting to do was they were basically wanting to hold on to elements from the old covenant and then apply them to the new covenant. And that is, that is a grave error. You see, the old covenant was filled with types and shadows that pointed to Christ but it never in itself promised eternal life. And so to mix into the new covenant then, these elements from the old covenant, uh, the requirement to be circumcised, we'll see that in Galatians 5 too, 
and to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We'll see that in Galatians 4.10. It's to impose a legalistic and meritorious component onto the gospel, which means then it's no longer the gospel. It's not good news if we have to do something to earn it or we have to do things to keep it. And so these people who are his opponents, they were probably Jewish Christians. And I say that in the loose sense. I say that in the sense of Christian by name only because they're, they're, they're not acting like Christians. They're saying Paul's gospel message is wrong. They're trying to teach a gospel based on, or in cooperation at least, with works. Um, these, are, these are people who had come from Jerusalem, like the men mentioned in, in Galatians 2.12. We'll read that next week, I believe. And they claim to have James, Peter, and John as pillars for their understanding. We'll read that again. That's Galatians 2.9. Uh, for them, Paul was an imposter who stood in contrast to the other apostles. Uh, he, he wasn't with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And now here he is starting churches in the name of the Messiah, but telling Gentiles they don't have to be circumcised or to keep the feasts. So these opponents, who most people identify them as a group of people called the Judaizers, that's J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. Um, there's some debate upon if that's who they really are or not. To me, it doesn't really matter who they are or not. We know what their sin was but we're going to call them the Judaizers because that's what I, th I think is right and that's what most people say. Like it doesn't actually identify them by that name. Um, they've gone out to set the Galatian churches straight. You know, they're saying that Paul may claim to be an apostle, but he's not really one. They say that he may claim to preach the true gospel, but he only has it secondhand from the, uh, the true apostles, and his version is seriously flawed. That's what they're saying. So now he'll continue his defense of the gospel and his apostolic ministry by first pointing to his previous life. So he says in Galatians 13, or 1, 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, the traditions of my fathers. So Paul was a, a man whose reputation had preceded him. Uh, he knows very well that these Judaizers know of him and what he was like before he met Christ. And so he points out just how anti-Christian he was, uh, how anti-Christian he was in his former life. They were aware of it. They, we read, have heard of his former life. It wasn't unknown, and they heard of it in at least two ways, and both of these realities should color the way that they're seeing his apostolic ministry. You see, it wasn't just that he was mildly opposed to Christianity. It's not like he was some relativist who, you know, who had his own truth and then simply accepted that other people are going to have their truth as well. He wasn't like Pontius Pilate who said, what is truth? No, in Paul's mind, at that point, Judaism was the truth and Christianity was a gross perversion of the truth. You know, before God changed him on the road to Damascus, Paul viewed Christianity as a threat worthy of severe violence and force. It's not like he just wrote blogs opposing it. His goal was to, to exterminate Christianity. As we, read in, as we read in Acts a few weeks back, he was out on the streets leading and arresting and putting Christians to death. He was violent towards Christianity. He tried to destroy it. Acts 8.3 says that he ravaged the church. Acts 9.1 says that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. And they knew this fact. They had heard of this already. And so it was beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Paul who evangelized the regions in Galatia and set up churches there is a much different man than the one who did everything in his power to eradicate the church of God. Right? That's his, his first point. They know of his violence towards the church of God. And his second point in his defense is also something that they, coming from Jerusalem, would be well, well aware of. It's his, his religious pedigree, so to speak. We might think of it like, like this, I think. Verse 13 was the fruit of what he says here in verse 14. So he, in other words, he persecuted the church so violently because of how zealous he was for Judaism. And so what it says is that he was advancing beyond those of his age. Essentially, he's the head of his class. 
he's the one who's most likely to get the promotion. And the reason for it is because he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. The traditions that he mentions here, they're not the, the elements from the ceremonial and judicial components of God's law that we would see in the Old Covenant. What he has in mind here are those extra-biblical rules contained in what's called the Mishnah and the Talmuds. And th these were instructions that were, they were imposed on top of Scripture so that people might know how to live in a way that was pleasing to God. But there's a problem with them that they weren't Scripture. And they put demands on people that people couldn't keep. And they were what contributed to the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and the people of that time. And so he elaborates more on this in the epistle to the Philippians. So if you'd like, you could keep your finger here in Galatians and then just turn over a couple pages to the letter to the Philippians. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Chapter 3 tells us a little bit more about Paul's life prior to being converted, how, how he was as a Pharisee. And really, um, the verses after the verses we're going to read are some of the most wonderful in Scripture. We don't have time to get into them this morning, but it's really good. So Philippians 3, uh, we'll start at, at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. That, that's not like, that's not saying look out for the homies. Those are, that's a put down. He's, he's, he's being polemical. He's saying look out for these people who are opposed to God. He says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, so he's talking again about these people who are wanting to have the flesh circumcised. Same, same sort of error as these Judaizers here in Galatians. And then he says, for we are the circumcision, we being Christians, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's talking there not about physical circumcision, but about circumcision of the heart. Again, remember I said the Old Covenant contained types and shadows that pointed to the realities of the New Covenant that we have in Christ? Circumcision of the flesh was a, was a shadow, a type, that pointed forward to the circumcision of the heart. That's what would identify God's people. And so he says, verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So you, you could see here how lost he was at this point, how blind he was to the truth of the gospel. He was sincere as a Pharisee, but he was so lost. You can see all the confidence that he had was in himself. His, his religious pedigree was the source of his pride. He felt that he was righteous under the law by his own actions. How different of a man is that than the one who was writing the epistle to the Galatians? In Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. How, how different is that statement than what he was saying here where he thought he was blameless according to the law? His righteousness now is in Christ, not in the fact that he's a Pharisee who keeps the law. And so... This Paul who planted these churches in Galatia is a much different person than the one who used to live before Christ was in his life. This Paul who put all his stock in Judaism compared to the Paul who wrote a significant chunk of the New Testament is a different man. So his self-defense is building steam. It's making sense. Now, there are at least three things I think we should take out of this text. Uh, first, being that no one is too sinful for God to change. Look at, look at the former life of Paul. Right? He calls himself the chief of sinners at one point near the end of his life. On paper, we would have to admit that the likeliness of him converting to Christianity, Christianity was minuscule. He wasn't what some people might call a seeker or open to the faith if such a thing even exists. He was as far as possible from Christianity as anyone could be. 
He thought he had salvation, and at the same time, he was killing anyone who affirmed and promoted the true way of salvation. He's the type of person that one might think they were wasting their prayers on, but that is the exact wrong way to think. That God would save one who thought Jesus was a false teacher so much so that he murdered the bride of Christ should encourage us to not give up hope for our lost friends and family members. And I know, I know the temptation is to think that someone is just too sinful to become a Christian, that they have said no too many times, that they've turned down your offer to come to church too many times, um, they've turned down the offer to repent and believe, or that they, they need to clean up their lives a little bit before they can have faith. But the testimony of the Apostle Paul tells us that those things are all wrong. God didn't need Paul's permission. He came into his life while he was on the way to persecute Christians, and he made him alive in Christ. He regenerated him. He caused him to be born again, and Paul's life was changed. So, so don't give up praying for the lost. Don't give up interceding for them to the Lord. You know, salvation is of the Lord. Our hope is in him to save the individual, not in the individual to change himself. And so the life and testimony of Paul tells us that nobody could be too far gone that they, from our point of view that they could be cut off from salvation. Secondly, to advance in Judaism, or any other religion for that matter, is to die. Uh, it, is, it is common today for people to say something like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is a pretty good person. They, they have a spiritual life. Um, they're, even though they're not Christian, so I think I'll see them in heaven. Well, that, that can't be further from the truth. The Puritan Thomas Boston once wrote, Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. Uh, to, to travel in any direction other than the way, the truth, and the life is to go in the opposite direction from salvation. That's not to say that a person can advance so far in some religious system that that they would have no chance of returning from it. That's not true. We see that with the Apostle Paul, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He advanced far in that, but God still changed him. But what is true is that there is only one way of salvation, and it is in Christ alone. And this is especially important, I think, when we think of modern Judaism. God doesn't have two peoples and two ways of salvation. And Bear with me when I say this. Think about what, I, what I'm going to say here. I don't want to be perceived as a way that I'm not. But I do want to say that the nation of Israel is not God's people any more than any nation is God's people. God's, um, that doesn't mean that politically we can't be friends or anything like that, but it does mean this. It means that they need the gospel. Notice what Paul said in verse 13 that while he was advancing in Judaism, he persecuted the church of God. So the word translated for church here is the word that it usually is. It's ecclesia, which simply means a group of people. And so in the context, it tells us that this is a group of people who belong to God in a unique way. It's the group of people of God, the church of God. And guess what? While he was in Judaism, he persecuted the people of God, meaning those in Judaism aren't the people of God in that sense. God's people, those that have salvation, have always ever been those who were sealed with the Spirit, being born again and united to Christ in faith. Before the cross, it's like they were saved on credit, as evidenced through their faith in the promise of God's future atoning work for them. After the cross, so like for us, it's like we are saved on debit, trusting in the actual provision that God has made. The church, and by that I mean those who are truly saved in the church, they don't replace Israel as the people of God, but it's the continuation of what we might call true Israel, or what Paul will say in Galatians 3, 7, those with faith are the sons of Abraham. That doesn't necessarily mean that God is done with ethnic Israel. Um, there are many brothers and sisters who believe he's going to restore them in the, in the future. We don't have time to get into that today. But one thing I know for certain, that if he does, it will be through Christ. There is no other mediator between God and man. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is the only way of salvation. God has one people, one church in Christ.
And then thirdly, from this text, we can see that those that God saves are right to say that they have a former life. The power that is present in God's gospel in Christ is the power to transform our current life into a former life. It holds the power to remake. Regardless of how you've come in, regardless of how you walked here today, the offer on the table in God's gospel is that you don't have to leave like you came. That if you truly go to Him in faith, repenting of your sin and trusting that Jesus died for your sin, your salvation will be certain. You can, once you receive the gospel offered, talk about your life as a former life. Regardless of what's filled it before that, regardless of how you came in, the offer on the table is to have a former life. God makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Let's consider the next line of Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry, okay? So we'll now look at verses 15 to 17. Read them again to remind us of what they said. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right, so this next line of defense that he's offering in his self-defense is an appeal to the sovereign and gracious nature of God's call on him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 especially. Uh, in, a, in a previous sermon through these series, it might have been, I think, the first one in this series actually, we learned how it was that, that Paul, or, or Saul, if you like, was converted. How it was that he was traveling on the road to Damascus um, with his companion sometime after Christ's ascension, really to, to go to Damascus to persecute those who were trusting in Christ. And on that road, the Lord himself appeared in a flash of light, blinding him to signify that he was spiritually blind before and ultimately saving him at that moment. Remember, Paul wasn't seeking Christ. He was persecuting Christ. Martin Luther, in his commentary here, notes that the knowledge of Christ and of faith is not a human work, but utterly a divine gift. And so we might be inclined to think that this event on the road to Damascus is the beginning of God's plan for Paul. But Paul's wanting his opponents to know that that's, that's not right, that it started much before that. You see, the plans that God has for his creation, which unfold through providence, begin not in time, but before time even. It's not like God was reacting to the news of this terrible man, Paul, coming to Damascus to kill Christians. And so he, he intervened at that point to, to stop him. It's not like God learned about that and then acted. That's not right at all. God chose or purposed to use Paul to be a light to the Gentiles before he was even born, we read. He was set apart for this task. Paul isn't saved, isn't redeemed because he is bringing something to the table. It wasn't because of his ability to be zealous, his ability to walk in Judaism that actually saved him. It was because God is gracious. It was because God had a plan to glorify his son in Paul. And let that be our hope in all things as well, that God is not out of control, but that he is fully in control, even when things seem like they are just falling apart. Let it be our hope as well that God is sovereign and in totally in control. John Calvin comments, We owe it to the goodness of God, not only that we have been elected and adopted to everlasting life, but that he designs to make use of our services who would otherwise have been altogether useless, and that he assigns to us a lawful calling in which we may be employed. And so... Paul wants these Judaizers to know that it is God who is behind his ministry, who is employing him in the words of Calvin. It is God's gospel. It came to him from God. And the plan was birthed in the mind of God before Paul was even born. Further, they'd be well aware of the specific language, the specific phrase, phraseology that he's using here. 
Uh, this phrasing that Paul uses here alludes to the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 49 and also Jeremiah as prophets. Jeremiah 1.5 says this. It says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so just like Jeremiah was appointed to the nations as a prophet, Paul is saying that he's been appointed by God as an apostle. Interestingly enough, the same word that is used to translate the word nations in Jeremiah 1 is the same word we see, um, in, in the Greek Septuagint, right? The Septuagint is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Um, the same word that's used for nations there is the same word that's used for Gentiles here in Galatians 1. So they would be, you know, as Jews, they would be picking up on this correlation. Uh, about Paul being called to the Gentiles or to the nations, we're going to consider that in, in more detail next week or the week after. Uh, Pastor Nick will handle that in chapter 2. So next... We note that Paul was called by God's grace. Again, you know, it's not because Paul was something special that God called him. It's because God is gracious. God would have been within his right to send fire and sulfur down on Paul and his companions there on the road to Damascus. No one would think that God was unjust in that. After all, Paul was on the way to murder people who loved God. But instead... God the Son comes down from heaven in a white hot light of his holiness and chases away the darkness in Paul's life. It's not what Paul deserved. And this is the same for everyone who experiences salvation. It's not what we deserve. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it should make perfect sense that God makes, or that God prepares good works for us to do beforehand when we consider even that the Apostle Paul was set apart for this before he was born. The good work that he was set apart to do, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He didn't deserve it. It's because God is gracious. And this call that Paul references here was effectual. In other words, it caused something. And what specifically? Well, we read that the Son was revealed in him so that he would be commissioned to the Gentiles. It pleased God to save Paul and to use him, in other words. Such is the power of grace. Now, Paul takes this sovereign purpose of God in his life and then comments that, here at the end of verse 16, that he did not immediately consult with anyone. Then he says, nor did he go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him, but he went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So you remember, I hope, that the Judaizers are claiming that Paul learned the gospel secondhand from the apostles, but Paul's response is that that cannot be the case. Again, we went into some of this back in the first lesson through Galatians, I believe. But when Paul was saved, he didn't hang around to learn from the apostles. He started preaching Christ in the synagogues. We read there in Acts chapter 9. And then he leaves Damascus and he heads to Arabia for three years. The, the book of Acts doesn't tell us that he actually went to Arabia. It doesn't, doesn't give us that detail. But here Paul gives it in Galatians. And so he goes to Arabia for three years. We don't know what happens there. Uh, it's one of those things in which Scripture is silent on. Was he receiving further divine revelation? Maybe. Was, he, was the Holy Spirit helping him to see Christ in the Old Testament? Was he preaching Christ and him crucified for the sins of men? Certainly. So, so there's no way that Paul could know the gospel secondhand from the other apostles. He learned it firsthand from Christ. That's his point in saying that. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul is a unique individual in the story of God's redemption. He immediately goes out and starts preaching. That is not normative. That is not something that always happens, not something that we uh, think a person should do even. He even tells Timothy that when he appoints an elder to not lay hands on a person too soon, that he needs to be tested first. Right? But there was no time of testing for Paul. God took him and immediately had him preaching in the synagogues. He just goes and starts preaching. So there is this discontinuity and continuity between us 
in the Apostle Paul. Uh, between his story and our story. We are saved in the same way, in the sense that God's sovereign grace causes us to be born again. But we aren't saved in the same way because God doesn't reveal himself to us in a flash of light. Uh, The Apostle Paul was saved and called to preach Christ to the nations. Now, when we are saved, we aren't called to be apostles. Most of us aren't even called into vocational ministry, but we are called to serve the Lord wherever it is that we are. We are called to declare His glory where we live. And we are called even to, you know, extend that out to all the other nations. We have the privilege to share Christ with those around us. We have the privilege to call others to repentance. We aren't to beat people over the head with the gospel, but at the same time, we have to do more than just simply live out the gospel. We have to use our words, and we must declare God's gospel before others. We have to be like, again, like those waiters, and just bring what God's message is to others. And I know that isn't easy, but remember, we have a gracious God who saved us in Christ to do good works that he prepared beforehand. So he gives us the strength and the grace that we need to be obedient to him in this regard. Now let's consider the last portion of his defense in chapter 1. He picks it back up in verse 18. So this is Galatians 1, 18 to 24. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas in the Aramaic that we would say Cephas. And that's really, that's Peter. Then it says, And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul is tightening his case further here. He's tightening his self-defense even further here. Uh, You may have heard of the phrase before, the, the devil is in the details. Well, He's being specific here so as to say that the truth has his boot on the throat of this devil. Here are the details. And there's no way he could have misunderstood the gospel from the apostles and then taught the Galatians wrong because the details showed that he didn't even really interact with them at all. And then he did interact with them, but it was only after he had been preaching Christ for a number of years, for a long time, and by the time he gets to meet with the apostles, He spends 15 days with Peter. Not a long period of stretch by any means. It would be great to know what it was that they talked about. We can speculate as to what that is. Maybe what life was like with Jesus when Peter walked with him because Paul didn't get that experience. Who knows? But there's no way that in 15 days, even of intense training from the Apostle Peter, that Paul would be able to produce the kinds of letters that he wrote that are contained here in the New Testament. They have the fingerprints of divine revelation all over them. They are hard for the other apostles to understand even. Peter himself says that. 2 Peter 3.15-16 says, He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, so it's interesting there, right? Peter's good with Paul. Peter calls Paul a brother. Peter stands opposed to these Judaizers. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So so the Judaizers' claim is that Paul took secondhand what he learned from Peter and the other apostles and then, you know, twisted it and taught these churches in the region of Galatia wrong. Well, that can't be the case. He's had no time with these men, and the little time that he did have with Peter wasn't anything that would give him the, the breadth of understanding that he has as displayed in the letters that he wrote. Peter himself admits that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. That should make us feel good, church, that when we read the Bible, we can't really figure out all this stuff all the time, that even the apostles have sometimes... Um, where it was hard to understand. So we pursue uh, the truth as it is in Christ, and we continue to study. Now, again, I was saying 15 days isn't enough time. So these Judaizers, they don't know what they're talking about. 
He didn't even see the other apostles. He just spent time with Peter. But he did see James, the Lord's brother, and he'll mention him again in chapter 2. And then we have that parenthetical statement. He makes a vow, and what he's doing in that is he's, he's putting his integrity on the line. He's, he's making an oath before God. He says, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's telling the Galatians, you know, that they can check with Peter and James if they don't believe him. And then, after being in Jerusalem for a short time, he started traveling again and doing what he did, preaching the gospel to the nations. And, and that is something to be aware of as well, too, brothers and sisters, that our lives do matter in the sense that they reflect on the message that we say. You know, Paul's he's throwing his integrity on the line by saying that. If he's lying, it'll be found out. And if he's lying, then they should have no reason to trust the gospel that he preaches. And so that should remind us, church, that our lives do matter. It's not that our, our performance is what saves us, but the way that we live does either extend credibility to the gospel that we preach or it doesn't. I know in my own personal um, testimony, I guess, when I grew up, I knew a lot of people that said they were Christian and they lived just like the world. And for me, as a young person, that just totally meant that Christianity is fake. That, and it led to me you know, embracing atheism at a young age. So, so there is a correlation between our integrity, between our life, and the message that we put forth, the message that we declare. They should not be at, in opposition to each other. And so by grace, you know, we seek to be holy, that God might be glorified. Then... In verse 22, he says that the churches in Judea do not know him personally. The point here is this. If, if Paul had been a student of the apostles in Jerusalem, these are precisely the churches where he would have worked. Right? Remember in Acts 1.8, it says, he says um, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It goes out like circles spreading out. Well, if Paul was in Jerusalem receiving teaching from the apostles, then he would have been working, taking it to these churches that are in Judea, the, the, next, the next circle in that segment. But they don't know him there. They don't know him personally. And had he been trained by the apostles, they would have, because that's where he would have worked. They know of him, but they don't know him. Therefore, the whole attempt of the Judaizers to discredit Paul's apostleship is a, is a failure at this point. You know, on the basis of evidence with which the Galatians could check out, Paul makes a compelling case that his 180-degree turn from a persecutor to an apostle can only be explained by a revelation and commission from Jesus Christ himself. Then this, his, his testimony is the only thing that makes sense. Therefore, his apostleship is not from men or through man, as he says in verse 1 in Galatians. And his gospel, as verse 12 says, he did not receive it from men, nor was he taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the point of, of verse 11 is well established, which he says, this is not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. It is good news that comes from God. And why is this important? important because the glory of God is caught up in it. Paul's not saying all this, that his message is from God and not from man so that he can boast in himself. He's not wanting to be known as this person who is advancing beyond all the other apostles like he was when he was in Judaism. His aim, his goal, his desire is that God is glorified in him. Remember verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. That's the fuel for his zeal now. It's not that he would advance beyond others, but it's so that the God who loved him and gave himself for him would be glorified, that the life that he now lives in the flesh, he would live in faith by the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him, and so that God would be glorified. And may that be the reason that we do everything that we do as well. We're going to do something now that certainly glorifies God, we're going to observe the ordinance of communion together. Now, 
why is it that the Lord's Supper glorifies God? Well, it's because it focuses our attention on the work of Christ for our salvation. It's there on the cross where God, beyond a shadow of a doubt, proves his love for us. It's there on the cross where we see some of the attributes of God meet uniquely. His holiness, you know, as he punishes sin. His wrath there as he's punishing sin. His love for his creation, that he would even do this. His hatred for sin, his justice, his wisdom. Communion, the Lord's Supper, it is a means of grace for us. That means it is a way that God blesses us and strengthens us because he is active in our participation of it through our faith. And of course, it's causing us to remember how it is that we even have faith. It's telling us of the lengths that God went to redeem us. Also, when this table that we partake in is a reminder of the covenant that we're in with God. Remember I was saying earlier that we are in covenant with Christ, that Christ is our federal head. He's our covenant relationship. Our, he is the head of our covenant relationship if we are saved. It's the new covenant, sometimes also called the covenant of grace. Mark 14, 22 through 25 says this. This is when Jesus was instituting this ordinance. Verse 22 says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So that, that tells us something. The Lord's Supper or communion is not for everyone. It's only for those who are in covenant with God for salvation. And so if you, are, if you are not saved this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, um, then this is something that I would just ask that you uh, don't come forward and take, that you observe, that maybe you talk about it with the people who you came with, uh, that if you have little children in here, that maybe you explain to them again what these elements are. Let it be a teaching moment. So uh, the Lord's table is for everyone, for every person who is in the new covenant. Again, in other words, for everyone who is trusting in Jesus for salvation. Also, if you haven't been baptized, then I would encourage you not to come forward this morning and take communion today. Now, now why do I say that? Obviously, you don't have to be baptized in water to be saved. That's, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. But the reason that I say that is because our society... The, the Christianity in our society has bred a culture of easy believism where people are told that they are saved for any number of reasons, but they haven't really experienced the new life in Christ. And so you have in many churches uh, people who just prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or have simply grown up in the church but have never really took Christ and his claims seriously. And for that reason, they've never been baptized, even though the opportunity for them to be baptized has happened many, many times. They just let it go by. They just observe it happening. They never get baptized. Now, if the Lord has saved you, but there hasn't been an opportunity for you to be baptized yet, and your plan is to be baptized as soon as you can, then please do partake of this ordinance, because like I said, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. But if you're considering yourself a Christian, and you have since being saved, you've neglected to be baptized, and this covenant meal might not be for you. you know, talk to a pastor, talk, talk to an elder, and we can maybe determine that even before it, before it happens, because every case is unique. And, but it's something we want to talk to you about. You know, the Apostle Paul offers warnings in 1 Corinthians to not take this meal in an unworthy manner. That's why we examine ourselves before taking part in it. Why? Because in that examination, we're wanting to make our calling and our election sure so that we take this meal in a worthy manner. And taking this meal in a worthy manner, 1 Corinthians tells us, it makes you guilty of the blood of Christ. And that's why in that church, it says that people were dying and they were sick because they were taking of this ordinance in an unworthy manner. So it's only for those who are in the new covenant. 
With that said, you don't have to be a member here at First Family Church uh, to absorb the Lord's Supper this morning, but simply being a member of the church universal, someone who's been born again, has been baptized on that, upon that profession of faith, and is therefore trusting in Christ for salvation, you're free to take of this ordinance. And there's one last instructive word that I wanted to offer before we explain it. Uh, the Lord's table isn't for people that are without sin. You know, taking communion in an unworthy manner doesn't mean that you have to be perfect before you take it. As, as God's covenant people, we will struggle against the flesh until our death or until Christ returns. And it's not your obedience which makes you right for this holy ordinance. Do you realize what makes you right for the Lord's Supper? It is Christ. It is Jesus and his righteousness that makes you able to take this meal in a worthy manner. It's his love for you that he has redeemed you and justified you and is continuing to sanctify you. If you're trusting in Christ for salvation and you find yourself struggling against some sin, I encourage you to repent of it once again. And in the time of our self-examination to you know, confess that you need the Lord's help in that and then to come forward at the appropriate time and to partake of the elements in, in the hope that God will supply for you more grace to put to death the sin in your life that remains so that we might uh, live lives that glorify God. So at this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up. At this point, a little bit, I'm going to do the, the order of this a little bit different. I'd like for them to come up now and they could, you guys could take your elements now as well too. Sorry, I didn't tell you that before the sermon started this morning. Um, they're going to be leading us in a song while we observe communion, but I want them to come up now because I want them to be able to participate in the time of self-examination. Because often, you know, they, they sneak up while we're all praying in, in their service to, to the Lord and to us. But I want them to be able to have part in that time of self-examination. So they're coming up now. And so while they lead us in that song, which, um, which we should all take part in singing as well, you all will have the opportunity to come up and take a piece of bread and also a cup of the fruit of the vine. Um, the bread represents the body of Jesus that was crushed for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed for us. You'll take both coming down the center aisle here and then filing back around the, the outside and going back to your seats. That way we'll have a nice flow. And you can partake of each element as soon as you come up and get it, or you can take it back to your seat and eat and drink it there and continue to worship in song. If you have a hard time maybe walking up or coming up to the front, maybe just ask someone if they could bring the elements to you. That'd be totally fine and good. Um, just know one thing about it, too. We're only doing one song, and so we're not all going to do it together at the same time like we do when we do it the other way. We observe the Lord's Supper. So before we read Scripture together, and before I ask God to bless the elements, we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. Again, this is a time of self-examination, a time in which we are praying to our Lord, our personal Savior, that we might know that he is our Lord and Savior, and we might confess any sin. Not that we have to be sinless or confess all of our sin to come up, but that we might know that we are right with him. And so we'll have that time of self-examination, about 60 seconds or so, and then at the end of that, I'll pray, asking God to bless the elements, and then we'll read some scripture together that will be on the screen for you, and then the band will lead us in a song. But let's, let's have that time of self-examination, so let's pray.